0: This was the only time I was looking back on. did I just drive the family business straight into the ground? I start thinking, Jesus Christ, am I going to be able to pay these guys because our sales have plummeted so much? So now I'm pumping the brakes on everybody. The concrete guy, the electrician, the plumber, everybody. I'm like, hey, get the hell out of here. I don't even know that I can pay you based on the work you're doing right now. As fast as I cut them off, five weeks later, I'm going, All right, hey, hurry up. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes.
1: I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company.
0: We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space.
1: We're excited to have
0: Bill Larson from Larson Packaging Products join us today on the podcast. We're going to hear a very interesting story about a couple of shifts, both personally and professionally, that have taken place, not only for Bill, but the company, and an exciting tale. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course, excited as Gene mentioned, I know you've had some explosive growth over the last couple of years that I know we'll get into at some point. So before we start digging in, maybe give me an idea uh, of what you guys do a little bit different today than it was a couple of years ago, I know, and a little bit different than our previous guests. So why don't you give me a couple minutes on what Larson Packaging Products is all about and where you guys are located. We
0: are located in St. Charles, Illinois. We were a distributor for 30-plus years, mostly shipping supplies, stock boxes, tape, stretch film, things along those lines. Made the jump about two and a half years ago to manufacture our own corrugated. Perfect timing, by the way. Timing was impeccable. To be honest with you, looking back on it, our initial thoughts were, oh my God, what have we done? Because our sales plummeted literally three months in, in the middle of installing a press and our sales are plummeting 30% for two straight months. So not a good plan at the time. Fast forward a number of years, I should say about 18 months and thank God we did what we did just from supply chain to delivery, to explosive growth, new business. Yeah. Thank God we did what we did when we did it.
1: Yeah. We're excited to hear about it. Let's dive back to the beginning. You guys started in this luxurious warehouse. You guys had the biggest capabilities on earth, right? They want to have Larson yeah, packaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah your so, garage. Our garage, <laughs> it,
0: this company has started out in, I believe it's late 87 with my dad and my stepmom. My dad had a number of years in the carton closing industry, be it tape, staples, things along those lines, stitching wire. They started in a one car garage with the car in it with $1,000 in inventory. And my dad was selling what he knew what his background was. From that point, we made some moves along the way for sure. <laughs> well, it's
1: safe to say you're not in a one-car garage anymore. We are no <laughs> longer in a one-car garage, and the
0: inventory value is <laughs> a little more than a $1,000 at this point, yeah.
1: So your dad started the company in 1987?
0: He started in 87, yeah.
1: You joined the company in 19. 19-
0: 88. Came on around a year later, again, selling what he knew, what his background was.
1: You didn't have a background in packaging? I had zero
0: background. I was a year out of high school at that point. Originally, I was going to be a carpenter and decided that was not for me pretty early on. But sales actually was pretty good for me. It came somewhat natural. My dad took me around Elk Grove and Bensonville, and he knew where the bodies were buried as far as where supplies were, who was using what. How did he know that when he breaks off to sell a thousand bucks worth of inventory what was he doing prior to that that really kind of launched him into this concept of hey i think i'm going to take a flyer a lot of who he did business with back then were fastener companies fastener companies used everything that he sold steel strapping packing slips stencils at the- basically he sold them everything but their boxes over time the box thing for me as a new guy on the street once again this was pre-uline pre- Master distributors, nobody was selling stock boxes at that time. So everybody was asking us, can can you get us boxes? Can you get us boxes? I was tired of telling people we don't sell boxes.
1: When you decided not to do the carpentry thing, call your dad up, dad, I want to go to work with you or what?
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about going and selling for you. And he said, okay, here's a roll of tape. Let's go sell it.
1: And your relationship up to that point with your dad growing up, you guys were fairly close. You guys had a great relationship. Yeah, we had a great relationship. So it seemed like. This is the path you wanted to go, follow in his footsteps, work together with my buddy. And yeah, I didn't really follow a whole lot of what he did. I would go to work with
0: him on Saturdays and stuff when I was a kid and go into his warehouse, he processed the mail and stuff like that. And this is early on when they were in the back of a fastener company. It was actually somebody they had sold to that he just rent some space out and kept a little bit of inventory there. And then from there, he had ended up splitting off with that guy, one out on his own. That was where he originally ended up in his, starting over in his garage. So he's off on his own and you decide, as Joe said, that you're going to get into the business. It wasn't much of a business at all. It, was, <laughs> it really wasn't the way we had just started. So yes. he just he said, he's okay, I'll take you through Elk Grove and Bensonville. And through his knowledge of cold calls and customers that he knew of and referrals, he knew where a lot of companies were. But his MO was not really to call on really big guys. His MO was to call on the small to medium guys that he had loyalties to and they had loyalties to him and that he would take care of them and they would take care of him. But the fastener business back then was a a booming business everybody there was tons of fastener companies making screws nuts and bolts just in elk grove and bensonville let yeah. alone domestically i don't exactly know when that all went by the boards but it was a it was, that industry definitely went south at some point our listeners who are unaware if you could close your eyes and imagine the largest industrial park you could possibly fathom that is the elk grove bensonville area around o'hare airport and there are eight thousand square foot Facilities with one drive-in dock door all the way to a million square feet facilities. And in the early days, back when there was no computer, there was a manufacturer's directory, and you pulled it out on the front seat of the car, and you basically went door to door, banging on trying to get somebody to buy a roll of tape. So that must have been quite an experience for you at what nineteen? Yeah, back then, like I said, my my dad would just go door to door and figure out who was buying what, and maybe they would buy from me today, and maybe they would buy from you six months down the road. But a lot of things that I still do today, sales-wise, I was taught by him from the standpoint of, you make a sales, you make a cold call on a particular customer, he might not buy from you today, but go back and recall on him. Maybe he'll give you an opportunity. He was able to help me develop a sales tactic of, go see your customers monthly, call on them for two reasons. To make sure that they're happy and they like what's going on. But also, if they're buying something else, why are they buying it from somebody else? Try to dig deeper in that account. So first and foremost, make sure your guy is happy with your service and happy with your product. But also, become a friend to him and be- begin to develop a rapport. And so once you have that rapport, it doesn't matter really who comes in and who calls on your customer. If they're your friend, they're not going to it from anybody else. We still, in some cases, have customers that we call on that had done business with my dad 40 years ago. Give us kind of the first five years of just generally how things started to escalate going from this thousand bucks worth of inventory and tape only. And now you guys land a customer and you begin to grow. A lot of what we were doing back then, again, we had, the, we had staples and we had strapping and we had filament tape, which is a lot of what my dad's background was. So we would go around and try to sell. My dad's big thing was sell out of our stock. We have the best prices on the things that we have in stock. So lead in with those. We weren't selling corrugated. We weren't thinking about stocking products for anybody. My dad's MO and my MO are very different. I like to make what I call educated gambles. My dad was like, well, we don't make gambles here. These are this, That's not what we do. We have certain stock products and the stock products that we have to have three or four different companies buying them. Otherwise, it's too much of a gamble to have a particular item for one customer and that's it. This is where him and I would start to spread apart a little bit as far as our MO. His original MO was he wanted to stay small. He wanted to be able to service his customers like no other. He wanted to make sure again building that rapport, building that friendship, making sure that when the guy called and said, Hey, I'm totally out of something, can you get it here today? That he would say, Yeah, problem. I'll be right over. Because he had it in stock and we were able to do that. If you started selling things that we didn't have in stock, would limit how you were able to service him. Now he had to wait. So he would always try to sell out of our stock as best as possible. On the other hand, I was the other way around. I was like, hey, if this guy's willing to give us an opportunity, let's put it on the floor for him as an educated gamble. I don't want to bring in 10 truckloads of something he's going to buy a minimal amount of. In perfect world, he's buying something out of our stock. But if he's not, let's get together some sort of a contract to put together this blanket order. How quickly Did that, as you started to find your MO, as you said, how quickly after you were there, did that you start to start seeing that change like that? It was early on from the standpoint that what I learned about a warehousing program from Green Bay Packaging was the only manufacturer that would put products on the floor and release them as needed. I had never heard of that before. So nobody else was really doing that back in the day. This is. Pre master distributors, pre U line, nobody was really doing that back then, but they were. What is this roughly? Late 80s? The 80s yeah. yeah. So they were warehousing, they had 50,000 square feet full of custom products for specific companies. And I'm like, this is insane. But yet they had a niche that today is still a little hard to compete against. So we took that business model and we elaborated on that. And then that warehousing type of distribution model as a manufacturer. And we applied our logic as a distributor hey let's do stretch film and let's do tape and let's do custom printed tapes and let's do certain things that carry a lead time if we take the lead time out and they run out all well, over are the hero every day yeah so that just eventually moved into the corrugated arena and different custom items for us that it didn't really matter what we sold at that point it was if it was custom we can get a blanket order We lock that business in for a longer term than tomorrow. But it sounds like you were pulling him along a little bit until he could see that there was an opportunity. So my father and I, we still to this day get along fantastically, but between eight and five, we would bang heads a little bit (laughs) on how we were going to market. Yeah, for about 20 years. To this day, people will ask me, this place is amazing. What does your dad think? And I'm like, my dad thinks I'm out of my mind. But at the end of the day, it was truly his vision of how to sell, how to go to market that I was able to elaborate on. That was my sounding board. That was my platform that he said, here, we'll call on these guys. Make sure that they know that you're coming back to see them. And so on the 31st or on the 15th or whatever, hey, I'm going to be back to see you next month. Sounds good. See you then. I'll make sure if we need anything. I'll... We started to build those rapports and that just grew. How
1: long, going back to the early days when you were banging on every door you had a thousand bucks of inventory, you say, how long before you landed in an account or two where you started feeling. Yeah, this is going to work. I don't think I ever didn't think. I just, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, at no point was I ever looking back and going,
0: maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. We just, we're just just pushing forward. I was knocking on every imaginable door. I would push myself, to be honest, tired. I've done four streets in Elk Grove. I'll do one more. Yeah. I'll do one more. And I just kept pushing myself to the point where I would try to get so many business cards from prospective customers that... If it was a rainy day, I could stay in and just concentrate on calling them all day long, but if it was a nice day, I want to make sure I got and built up a stack of cars. Was there revenue coming in at that time? It was, yeah, we were never like dead in the water and my dad had been in the industry, he had business coming in.
1: It's interesting to hear the grind that it took. Yep. and calling and knocking on doors. I think that might be a little lost since today's game and exactly what it took and well, what it takes it, to win.
0: Completely <laughs> different concept because back in the day, you're probably wearing a tie. And you're knocking on these doors and you are learning the fine art of face to face getting past the gatekeeper. And it's hot AF. Yes. In the middle of <laughs> yeah. summer. Or you're like, you're out there going, Hey, Absolutely. one more one more. And my collars are like yellow because I'm, like, yeah, I'm, I'm sweating and I'm like, I'm walking these customers and my shirt is soaked and they're like, Oh my God, yeah, just come on in. What are you selling? <laughs> it's really interesting because I was in banking and got a promotion into quote unquote sales and he threw up a manufacturer's guide on the desk and said, I want you to call. Every company with more than 25 employees, because it meant that they were bankable in our opinion, and I want you to get an appointment and we wrote a script and you got hung up on a hundred times and you'd get one person that'd be like, okay, come on out. Talk about that a little bit. You got to be resilient. You're like a major league closer. You can't remember the last pitch. You got to move on. I think that what I would do is I would make these cold calls and I would, first and foremost, as I got better at it, I would drive around the open doors. Can I see a strapping machine? Can I see a bundle of bubble wrap? Can I see a whole boatload of boxes? What can I see in there? And then you go in and you ask them specifically at the front door. Hey, I know you guys buy a lot of boxes. Who's doing the purchasing on that? Yeah, and how many back doors did you go through? Back I then went too? through a lot of back doors because, because when you go in the summertime. Well, because when you go to the front door, and they say, "Yeah, we can't hand that information out." I said, "No, no problem. Not at all." I go right around to the shipping door and I walk right in the shipping door and say, hey, who buys the boxes? And that guy wasn't told to not give me that information. Correct. It's a lost art. So what I would do is I'd go to the front door. She wouldn't tell me anything. And I would say, hey, can I just get a business card, a letterhead, an envelope, something just showing your address to say I was here because my boss is a real ass. So I need to show him that I have been here. But then when she wouldn't give me the information, I'd go to the shipping office. I had the envelope. I had the business card. I had whatever it was. And then I could write his name on it. And then I would also write on that information, whatever it was that I saw. Yeah. Cause you're getting a hundred or 200 business cards in a day. You're not going to remember all of them. And so many of those people knew what the problems were. Exactly. How long was it just you and your father? I have to say, I don't even know if I can tell you when we hired on our first sales guy. So you're doing all this running around and you get four orders come in. Are you just packing boxes yourself? Originally my dad had his 40 or 50 customers. And so my dad would go out and take his orders and deliver his own stuff. We had a, just a van that we would just run around and deliver it in. I was doing the same thing. I would have my own customers and I would do my own deliveries. It got to the point where I was getting more and more customers. My dad was not making cold calls. He was calling on his existing guys. But it got to the point where I was bringing in a substantial amount more business. I'm like, hey, I could bring on more business if I wasn't making all my own deliveries. So we made that shift early on where he would introduce me to his customers and I wouldn't start calling on his customers. He would start doing my deliveries. And that's how the shift started. Yeah. But what's really nice about that back in the day is that the customers knew I was a sales guy. He was my dad and my dad would go in and BS with him and say, hey, is everything going okay? And he would bring that same level of service as the owner, as the old man. And so they appreciated him probably more than they did me because he was the one actually schlepping the stuff off the truck and bringing it in and just making sure everything was going okay while I was out looking for new business. Yeah.
1: How long after you guys started working together, did you move out of that garage and get a formal space? So that
0: progression went from that garage to 400 square foot you store it to which we at that point had to have the bubble wrap that we were selling delivered to a trucking company for which we would then go take our van which we could only put five bundles in And we would truck it back and forth there came a point in time where the truck company that we were in with were moving into a bigger facility and they had come to us and said hey what are you guys doing with all this stuff like why don't we just give you some space here we'll help you with those inbound loads and if you have anything that was even that much bigger we'll help you with the outbound as well that was where it really took off for us that's neat because then we we had an inbound facility we had their ability to do our bigger deliveries that was when we really took on the sort of Green Bay packaging MO of let's do blanket order fulfillment. How much space did you take from them? I think it was a monstrous 1500 square feet. Those are big moves though. You're going to Raj to 400 and I can see you guys going in there the first day and you're like, oh my God, what are we going to do with all this space? We thought we died and went to heaven. Yeah. What happened was they had said on top of their offices, they had concrete floor. And he says, we'll give you the whole thing for, I don't know, it was like 500 bucks. The owner of the trucking company knew that there would be more stuff coming along the way other than just renting to us. That 1,500 square feet turned into 2,500 square feet. Then we started taking floor space on their floor for more and more corrugated that we were buying. Got to the point where they were outgrowing the building, we were outgrowing them. We had to do something on our own. At this point, we had gone into 5,000 square feet in Schaumburg. Now this was all-encompassing, all our own stuff. We had to go buy our first forklift, which is, oh my God, $20,000 for a forklift. That was more than I was spending on a car at the time. We learned really fast. I didn't know what bottler's tilt was. I didn't know what polished and tapered forks meant. I didn't know any of that stuff. Then and, and the trucks would show up without skids. And I'm like, how the hell are we going to get the stuff off the truck? So we tried to unload units on the floor of a trailer without bottlers tilt, without polished and tapered forks, and we had a whole truckload of a printers box that we had to unload them. So We learned a lot of things the hard way
1: how long was your growth pattern at this point from garage to 400 to 1,500? this is
0: probably like 95 so
1: in about seven years yeah you guys saw some pretty good growth
0: good enough to be able to move into our own facility i never sat down and learned boxes 101 so all of that transition of us starting to even sell the corrugated products in general all done in reverse yeah losing the orders why did I lose this order why didn't we get that or why is our price so high somewhere along the way I figured out that if you take a 16 by 16 by 8 stock box and you flip those dimensions around and you make it 16 by 8 by 16 that the sheet size is roughly 20 percent smaller the end result is the same but if you can take cost out of that sheet or make the sheet smaller all of a sudden the lights went on yeah and I was like okay now we start learning about gapping flaps. You start learning about how you make the sheet smaller. You start learning about all that stuff. And again, unfortunately, like I said, this is all self-taught. It got to the point where I got some guys in the industry that we had done business with prior to us going and manufacturing our own stuff that I borderline apologized to. <laughs> I just said, I know enough to be dangerous. I would say to a gentleman named David through this 10 year process of me buying for him, I said, I know enough just to be dangerous. And he's like, you know, a little bit more than that. So when I made the jump. To manufacturing it did not surprise him in the least
1: when you were going through those early growth moments you're just scrambling to get product to people you're knocking on doors you're growing at a rapid pace what's the vision in your mind for long term he was constant
0: growth i've been in growth mode for 30 years but i really just had not looked back where we had growth struggles between the two business models that we would go by between my father and myself he wanted to stay small yep. didn't really want employees he didn't want the overhead, didn't want to deal with trucks, didn't want to deal with maintenance, didn't want to deal with a building, a landlord and things like that. And I totally understand that. My dad, when he started this, was 45 years old. He was at a much different time in his life. And me right now at 52 years old, I get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it at 19 or yeah. 20 or 25 years old. I had, uh, had an ass full of energy and I was just like, hey, let's just go conquer the world. Yeah. My analogy for explaining my relationship with my father and business is I would say, it was like we were driving a car. And I had the gas pedal, but he had the steering wheel. So I could drive as fast (laughs) as I want, but he could steer us into a tree at any point in time. And it was his money that was driving the company. So it did come to a point where I'm like, hey, I was just going faster than I think that he really wanted to go. And there was a lot of friction between the two of you. Between eight and five. And I said, we've always got along fine, but our business M.O.s were definitely different. When did that start where you're saying to yourself, we're going in different directions and maybe we need to sit down and have one or a series of conversations about the future of this business? Did it ever get contentious? No, how that conversation actually went was I'm like, hey, this is blood. We work together. I'm not trying to leave anybody high and dry, I said, but I have a vision here of getting bigger. That was about, it was just a big gray cloud of, hey, I I, want to continue to grow if you're continuing to grow you're not going to fail is really what it boils down to i would always say you're either growing or dying there is no in between you don't just go ride the status quo you're going to lose business through attrition you're going to lose business because a new buyer comes in a customer goes out of business you can't control that
1: so when did he get on board with that or did he ever
0: he was always on board until i'm like hey we need to get another truck or we need to get more this or more that or more racking whatever and so There came a point in time where I just said to him, like, hey, I need some light at the end of the tunnel here. What's your exit strategy? We just started a conversation. And when was that? Do you remember roughly? Late 90s. Yeah. You watch entrepreneurs, and we've seen this in a multitude of people that we talked to. Most of them, their risk profiles change. And the investment of another truck or a bigger building or things like that all translate into additional debt at 60, 70, 75. Those are troubling conversations and as you said you're you know what 25 years younger than him still ready to grow mm-hmm. and still have this kind of energy and so those things begin to take fold so late 90s you guys are talking about this and yeah late 90s maybe early 2000s yeah. and so what's his sense of that and he's and he I thought I was waiting he's gonna be offended by this yeah he really was not he was he just was open to it and say let's talk to the accountant and see how we can structure things so it's good for both parties and so we ended up Coming up with a buyout structure. And was it over point, time or was yes. it like a? It, it was like, it was which you probably valued because you weren't necessarily trying to kick them to the curb. Well, at this point in time, the main players there were myself, my dad, my stepmom. We had a guy working in our small warehouse at that point. But my big concern is if my dad retires, so does my stepmom. Yes. Now, my my dad's running the warehouse. There's three major components you have sales, you have warehousing and logistics, and then you have administration. We were doing at the time two and a half million, three million dollars in business. On paper there was no computers there was no nothing so now we're coming up with a strategy for me to take over for them to step aside and this can all be transitioned the way we really all both want there was nothing hard and fast that hey this is my last day and that's it yeah but i'm like hey we need to get a distribution software going and we need to get computerized in some form or fashion so We ended up buying a distribution software program. Now you need to locate things and you need to put things. Now at this point we have racks and we have material and we have things in the racks, but now you need to locate those racks. You need to put the material in the system in that location. And he was not getting on board. Yeah. He's I'm not, I'm out. I said, okay, that's cool. There was probably 14 months left on our. Initial little deal. And I yeah. said, look, if you can't get on board, you gotta get out of the way. Yeah. I, I can't knew- have half the inventory locatable. And I get it. I, he was not what he wanted. Yeah. yeah. I totally understand that. But I'm like, then either get on board or you're gonna have to get out of the way. It was a tough conversation. Like I said, I wasn't trying to push anybody out. He said, he's was like, that really what you want? I said, no, I really want your help. Yes. But if you don't want to help, then that's fine too. But let's just do something that is moving forward and not looking backward. So we got through that and my dad decided to step aside. It was totally fine.
1: Go back while you guys were working together real quick and you talk about between the hours of eight and five, your buttheads, oh, you yeah. would be screaming at each other. Yeah, and-
0: I, we would joke that my stepmom was wearing the striped shirt because she'd <laughs> have to get in the middle of us like, hey, let's work this out a different way. But a lot of that was generally sales driven where yeah. I'm bringing th- things back. And I'm going, hey, I got the opportunity for this and this is what we need to do, but I'm going to need to bring in another $10,000 worth of inventory. And he'd be like oh my God, he's like another 10 grand. So he's just watching the inventory build. You're watching the inventory build. Chances are you're watching the receivables build. Yep. And so all encompassing, it's a lot of money. And so he's getting older and closer to retirement age and he's like, I don't want to dump any more money at this thing. And I don't blame him. He wants to dump his money in something that you would do with your retirement at that point.
1: But after the hours of five
0: o'clock? Yeah. It really, it was just his MO versus my MO. And I would not be where I am today without his again is his guidance from day one so i still to this day apply his mo as far as sales were concerned to my current guys when i have new people start it's the first thing i tell them is that you got to go make some cold calls somebody's going to give you the the time of day and they're going to say come on in give me a price on this and this i said all i need you to do is bring me back the samples i'll be i'll take it from there i need a quantity how many they're gonna how many they're gonna run that's where i would get creative with them and say okay is this something for a blanket order fulfillment this is back when we, we were competing with competitors as a distributor the only way we can do that is to compete with the price was to out service the guys that are actually manufacturing because they generally had a three to five day lead time somebody's buying 500 pieces every Friday let's just say I would say hey give me an order for 4,000 pieces I'll bring them in get you the same amount every Friday that you wanted you've been ordering but at a much lower price I also have them on the floor so if all of a sudden you have a spike in business I can get them to you same day I get them to you next day we always had to outservice the manufacturers. It was the only way we can do it. And once we got our claws into those customers, it was hard to bounce us out without doing another warehousing type of program. Cause we would get them used to it. And they think that's the way it is. That's well, not really the way it is, but it's the way we do it. <laughs> and it's such an interesting thing you glossed over it, but a lot of people don't realize is when you are growing at a fairly rapid clip in a smaller business. And you just, to the listener who could put this into their mindset, you're buying inventory, whether you're a distributor or a manufacturer, and that's going to sit until it gets converted to a sale. So that cash has gone to that inventory. And there's also a corresponding payable to the vendor for that same item. You convert it into a sale and your customer has terms. So now you're waiting to get that money as well. And so as those three aspects grow, it squeezes cash. And, and it's a bit of a dam, but don't forget Uncle Sam. And then you throw Uncle Sam on there and you got some tax payments along the way. It can be pretty, pretty restrictive. So you described an interesting piece about your model as a distributor. What makes you decide to go out and spend X million dollars on equipment and decide to make your own boxes? We had five or six manufacturers that we were dealing with from integrated to sheet plants. It got to the point with all the consolidation over the last 20 years we just could not get what we needed. We got to the point where it was taking us three and four days just to get pricing. That order has already been delivered by the time we were even getting the pricing from whoever it was that we were buying from. Not everybody was that bad, but we had certain quality issues or we would have issues where they were constantly missing dock appointments or it didn't really matter what it was. It got to the point that we were finding that we were having issues with A lot of our vendors. Do you think it's because of your business model where you go to the back of the line because you're a quasi competitor? Yeah. So you have to now say what's in the best interest of my customers at that point. Exactly. But unless you decide to make that jump, which ninety nine percent of companies are not going to do. Yeah. So it's a significant investment. It's not just the investment of doing that. It's you have to have the knowledge of what to do. You don't just throw a two color rotary die cutter in and go. Okay. Now what do we do with it? There's a scrap system that goes along with there. Yeah. There's there is design software. There's an operating system. There's a lot that goes into that. The first machine that you buy isn't necessarily the hardest one to put in, but to get an all-encompassing program, yeah, it takes a long time. Was it coming a
1: manufacturer? Always a goal of yours? You- yeah,
0: yeah. Now, did I ever know that was going to come to fruition? No. I never did that. There came a point in time where we had some major pieces of business that we lost. So it was like one step forward, two steps back types of deal where I thought, okay, maybe we should go do something different. And we did buy a printer. It was like 80-year-old technology, like mimeographing basically from Iconotech.
1: Early 2000s you're talking about right now?
0: Yeah, this is early 2000s. So. The machine might've been like 65,000 bucks, which for us at the time was like off the charts expensive. And we bought this thing and I thought we were gonna be able to do all kinds of stuff. We were able to print on the box after it was made. So we could take stock boxes out of our inventory, and put somebody's logo on it. I thought, oh, we're going to run tens of thousands of these things. It's not how it ended up. What it did end up is when we bought this press, it had a way of burning. It was almost like wax paper. And so the computer generated some sort of a wax paper where it would burn the Mylar, I think yes. is actually what they call it. So A make ready. Something right? like that. And yeah. the, the ink would flow through. Oh, interesting. Brick. So they would put it actually, you'd put the ink inside the middle of the cylinder and as it went around, it would have had drain ink outside. So wherever that was burned, it, it would print. Yeah. So what... That machine ended up doing for us was allowed us the ability to go into numerous customers that today we sell tens of thousands of boxes to that. I ran 25 boxes with their logo and I went, what do you think of this? Yeah. And so we did that with numerous customers where, cause you can't do that without a printing plate yeah. generally. And this was before digital printing. We would put it on every one of their stock boxes and I'd go, hey, what do you think of this? They're like, these are great. Can we get a hundred of each? And I'm like, yes. You couldn't do that on a normal press. It was just a small little niche. Is your dad still in the business There's this after? This was just after he had exited. But it gave us a niche. We were able to go into certain clients and say, hey, what do you think of these? Oh, that's great. And then certain customers, that has turned into something that we now do traditional print or, or digital print or something different. But without that initial lack of technology, we really might not even be doing what we're doing today. So that just led into one thing, which led into another thing, which led into another thing, and it was only black print. We couldn't even do multiple colors. If you wanted to do a red or blue, you had to empty the thing completely out, clean it all up and then do it all over again. So (laughs) I look back on it now and I'm like, would I do that again? No, but that did help us along the way with our journey and where we were going with to start to manufacture. We originally thought, hey, we could print on die-cut corrugated after it was die-cut. Sure. Or again, before digital, you could not do that yeah. generally. So that, again, just springboarded us into certain things that nobody else was doing. We didn't even know the hell way we were doing at the time. But oh, through all this trial and error, that's how we started with that. And then 2018 comes around. We're in 43,000 square feet in Carroll Stream. We have another offsite warehouse for another 15, 20,000 square feet. And our lease is coming up. And so now this is where we got to start. If we're going to do this, at this point, I'm 48 years old. I was just going to ask you that question. I'm 48 at this point. So I'm like, if we're going to, you're like a shark. <laughs> you just keep going forward. Just like I said, I don't want to look backwards. I want to keep <laughs> looking forward. So at this point, our rent is going to go up substantially. We were on a, coming off a seven-year lease. Uh, there's no way in hell I was going to start manufacturing boxes in a building I don't own. I'm like, let's do this. We say, Hey, let's go look for a building.
1: How many employees do you have at this point? 20. Yeah, you've grown significantly.
0: Found a place in Elmhurst that ended up falling through, thankfully, because it was 20,000 square feet smaller than we have. We end up finding the facility that we're in now. It's in St. Charles. I live in St. Charles. So I'm like, yes, let's make this work. Yeah. It's 103,000 square feet. We buy the building and now we're off to the races. So we buy the building on Halloween of 18, we spend the next six months gutting the entire thing it was 45 years old at the time at 50 years old you're gonna have to replace all the sprinkler heads in the entire building for its code so we're like let's do this now while it's empty so anything that had to be updated upgraded demoed we did all that before we even moved in i'm running around north america looking for what it is that we're gonna need do i know what we need at this point no i don't know anything (laughs) about this i know enough (laughs) to be dangerous i reach out to a gentleman that works for pratt that was my rep at the time and i said hey i think we're gonna go and we're gonna move forward here who do I call to start buying equipment? I knew of a couple guys here and there, but I didn't really know who's the go-to guy. So they refer me to the hair group. I call down to hair group and I said, Hey, my name is Bill. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, but I need to talk to somebody about selling me some box equipment and Bill meet Ben. Ben Liskey, yes. <laughs> ben Liskey ends answering the phone. Yeah. And so he said, he goes, I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen. Hmm. Where with all the consolidation and all of the growth with distribution and waiting for the distributors to start taking notice that what's going on here, but he goes, it has not taken off. So my conversation with Ben Liskey leads into further conversations with Jeff Jensen, and we would absolutely not be where we are today without both of those guys. Crazy. They have guided us. I have arguments with Jeff daily, to be honest with you, about stuff we need or don't need. This is two and a half years later, and I talked to both of those guys quite literally every day, if not every other day.
1: When you make the move, you buy the building, you're gutting that place, you're doing all the work, you're putting a lot of money into it. Your mind is still saying this is the right decision. You never thought twice.
0: I never thought twice until pandemic. No, I was like, hey, we're moving forward. I did not have a plant manager. I didn't have a plant layout. I bought a two color mini and I bought a two color rotary die cutter. Didn't know what to do with them, didn't know how we were gonna hook them up, but we were gonna figure it out along the way. It's really what boiled down to. You're just laying track as the train's moving, trying to figure your way through this thing. But you went on a really interesting point that I don't want to be overlooked. It's not just a piece of equipment. It's scrap, it's a computer system, it's infeed conveyor, it's a bander, it's a bundler, it's somebody to run the thing. Now you gotta buy sheets.
1: When you bought those pieces of equipment, did you consider all that or was it you bought it and then figured it? I
0: can't sit here and tell you guys, yeah, I had all that written down and I didn't. You're trying to run a business that still has customers with demands. It's even all the way down to all the extra inbound deliveries, inbound trucks. Somebody here, you have to have a material handler sitting there getting the stuff off the truck into stock, from stock into, in front of the machine. Somebody's got to feed it. Somebody's got to receive it. There's Ink, just a lot. Glue. There's a lot of all-encompassing there.
1: All-encompassing. At five o'clock, your day's not done. I imagine you are thinking about this constantly, still to this day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Through that time when you're trying to figure all of this out, pressure at home, pressure personally.
0: My kids are all older. My fiance is a veterinarian, and so she can have a similar issue. She understands if I'm going to be late, I understand if she's going to be late. It's a good relationship.
1: So you're eating, sleeping, and drinking this business. You put this
0: mini in. Is that the first one to go in? The first piece of equipment that we actually. Implemented and installed was a Solarco. Okay. That was an easy install because there's truly no plumbing. It's air and juice and that's it. So that installs pretty fast. The second one was the two color rotary and then the mini. So those go in, are you just scrambling to find people to run that? Are you running it? Who's training on that machine to run it? So we hired a guy to, to run the plant that had been in the industry. Yeah. Knew some people, knew him. So he was able to make some phone calls and get some operators. That helps a ton, huh? Is he still with you? He is not still with us. I still talk to him. We are still pretty good friends. I don't ever like to burn a bridge. But to this day, we try to home grow most of our employees if we can. We just find it works better for us. Might not work better for others. Other people, other companies may want to say, hey, we want to bring somebody in that's got a 30-year experience on a post forward gluer. Maybe they are on a four color rotary. For us, we really would just rather bring them in, show them how the machine works, show them how to run it, train them for four, five, six, seven weeks. We don't have the old dogs and new tricks. Yeah, We don't have the guy that says, hey, I only run a rotary and you know what? I'm not gonna go over there and run the bander or I'm not gonna run a flexo, or this is my machine. We're way ahead, I'm going home for the day. Yeah, like, where is, we don't have to deal with that stuff. So we have a great environment where everybody that's there has no problems working on any of the equipment. So knowing distribution and you have created this business where you're bringing in four times the order size, things like that, and probably getting pretty good pricing at your size. Mm. And now you're manufacturing, so you've inherited some new costs. Now you control your destiny. I get that part. But maybe now you only want to buy half of that in sheets. Did you see your margins go down? As you were trying to get this thing where you want, there's a trade-off, right? Your ability to control your destiny, but also a change in this business model inherently has more cost. That's a loaded question. And the reason that's a loaded question is because you're asking me to answer that over the last two, two and a half years when pricing is all over the board. That's a good point. So pricing's up, pricing's down. Again, we don't just work in the paper arena. We work in the steel strapping arena. We work in the plastic arena with stretch wrap and banding. And it's very volatile. Pricing goes up and pricing comes down. So we did not see much of a downtick in margin overall. But I think the main reason for that is we were, the minute we started manufacturing, we started picking up a tremendous amount of new business. I've got 30 years of places that I know business I could not get as a distributor let's now go back as a yeah. manufacturer most of those i had stayed in contact with again my dad's mo of selling okay so i stayed in contact with them really more or less want to see if, is that purchasing is still there because if he's not okay now i have a better opportunity yeah. but even these people that had been there for years and years once we started manufacturing they're like come on in we'd love to talk to you about it now that you're a manufacturer we don't want to talk to distributors. we want to talk to somebody who actually is making it knows what's going on if we have issues if we have problems they don't want to have to go to the distributor for them to go back to the guy who actually made it. You also hit on something earlier that I think maybe this is an underpinning that I'm assuming, but I feel like it's going to be true. I feel like you really know what your customer looks like. So when you say you're out going back to these old contacts, I feel like you know exactly what the customer profile of where you're going to be successful lies. Is that a fair statement? What I would do is I would literally go through and I would send quotes out obviously for the last 20 years. Yeah. The ones that had big volumes and things along those lines that we would like to get, but we're not able to for whatever the reason. Those are the ones that we went back after. And I had a stack of them for 20 years. So we just went back after all of those things and back to margin and overall profits. It never went down. That's really good. That's not easy. And it's really a credit to the problems you're solving for your customers. And so it wasn't all just this, here's the spread and I got to do this. It, there's more they're buying from you than simply just price. Say for argument's sake, genius one of your sales guys, been with you for 15 years. And he says, I'm going to leave. i to go out on my own. I'm going to start my own sheet plan. Okay, that's cool. So he goes out and does whatever he's going to do, but he's pretty one-dimensional. What I mean by that is he's selling custom corrugated boxes and that is it. Yeah. We're a manufacturer that distributes. We're a distributor that manufactures. So we're a hybrid. Yep. So if our custom corrugated goes up or down, it may or may not affect the distribution side of our business. Gotcha. So one can always work off the other one. The concentration of that corrugated segment isn't large enough because you have this whole other basket of items that you're selling. Exactly. We do ride both sides of that fence. Yep. So... In a perfect world, yes, we'd like to see our converting side continually escalate dramatically every year. And we think it will for a while now. We also think that the distribution side will follow because we're putting together distribution programs and vendor-managed programs that now don't just include the custom corrugated end. Now they're like, okay, you're buying corner board and you're buying tape and you're buying stretch wrap and you're buying banding. Let's get that all on one program. So we now can come in and make one delivery. So you're not going to have five different deliveries for five different invoices. For five different packing slips. Yep. The way we sell that program is we come in and just say, hey, we can make this a lot easier for you. And I tell people, everything that we sell are nuisance items. Nobody wants to buy them, pay for or deal with them. But the minute you're out of them, you got a big fucking yep. problem. You could have a truckload of steel strapping sitting there. If you don't have that little seal that goes on there, you can't use it. You could have a whole lots of boxes. If you don't have any tape, that's a problem. What does your dad say you got all this equipment in there and you bring him in to show him this 103,000 square foot building? Can he believe it? It's funny. He's obviously proud of the overall growth. Yeah, sure. But he would be real quick to say, yeah, you're out of your mind. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's talk about quickly, maybe the only time you thought you were out of your mind and that's when the pandemic hits. And this is shortly after you've put all this money into your business. Pivoted your business model. Yes. And maybe the only time in your career that things dropped. This was the only time, honestly, in
0: my career where I was looking back on, did I just drive the family business straight into the ground? And it was, and that was my thought. That's right when the pandemic hit. January of 20, we have machines implemented now. We're running, we're tweaking, we're making sure things are getting a little better every day.
1: And you're starting to see big time benefits. Oh
0: yeah. We had record after record and then the middle of March comes and somebody just hits the brakes. It's, they unplug the phones. I'm like, what in the hell just happened? Our sales plummet 25% in April over March. March was by far going at a shattering record pace. And as fast as it went up, the first two weeks, it slowed down twice as fast the second two weeks. It ended up being an okay month, but April was terrible. May came in, it was within a 100 bucks of what our... March was. So my, the way I was thinking about that is, okay, thank God. Maybe the hemorrhaging has stopped. June comes back. We are up about 10%. July comes back. We're right back to where we were. And from that point, then it just took off.
1: So just from the brief conversations we've had in the last hour, you're extremely confident. You have a crystal clear vision of where you want to be at the end of the day, but in March, probably for the first time in your life. Yeah. We could stop talking about this. It'd be great. You're extremely positive person about where you're at. to be really difficult those two months were yeah that were a rough time because like
0: i said i was like really did i have these thoughts of grandeur and we're going to make this into what it is today that was my vision you know what it is today is what i was hoping for and that was not coming to fruition right then and there i will probably mention a couple more times about ben Liskey and jeff jensen about why we are where we are today and they're a big part of that part of that is we were buying our mainline conveyor out of a company in pennsylvania and ben calls me up he says hey there's a company going out of business. Your riggers are out there. They're getting all the stuff ready for you. They have to be out of this building in six weeks. They still have some machinery there that you could probably get for a pretty good deal. They got a 50-inch Langston, two-color, no die-cut section. Basically, you could probably steal it. What do you want to do? Because they want 180 grand for it. Offer them 100 grand. I'm like, I don't really want it. No. Thank God we've got it. This all revolves back to Ben because... That thing has run 50 hours a week since we installed it. Mm-hmm. And it's never, we've never looked back. But he comes to me and says, hey, go ahead and make an offer on this thing. We buy it. We bring it in. He goes, if you don't want it, he goes, I'll sell it for you. Goes, I'll make you a hundred grand on that thing. How could I not do that? Yeah. So I bring it in and I said, no problem. I said, try to actively sell it. If you can't sell it, we'll install it. We're in the middle of installing that in the end of March. It was one of those situations where I would like to have gone to my dad and say, hey, you remember back in the sixties when this happened to you guys? How did you guys handle that? Nobody had the ability to answer that question. nobody had the playbook. And it it was just three or four months of just walking on pins and needles and going, okay, what's today going to bring? And then the employees' situation started where this guy's super sick. Should he even be here? And so it was one problem led into another. When I start thinking, Jesus Christ, am I going to be able to pay these guys? because our sales have plummeted so much. So now I'm pumping the brakes on everybody. I'm like the concrete guy, the electrician, the plumber, everybody. I'm like, hey, get the hell out of here. I don't even know that I can pay you based on the work you're doing right now. So as fast as I cut them off five weeks later, I'm going, oh, right, hey, hurry up. Now get the lead out, let's go. And we got to get this thing going fast. And we were miraculously picking up all kinds of business. And I don't really know how in some cases, because our sales guys weren't knocking on doors. They were trying to, they were calling. But if you're knocking on doors, Nobody's answering them. And if my guys are calling these companies, those people aren't working there. They're working remote. Yeah, And if nobody was answering emails, nobody's doing anything at that point. But we were getting phone calls from people all over the country. It didn't even matter what the cost was. Can you run it? Our lead time was two days. Everybody else's was getting further and further out, but I didn't have a 30-year book of custom business. We only took back what we had been buying from somebody else. So when we implemented this, these pieces of equipment we had jobs right out of the gate to start running without the pandemic it was an easy transition it really was it really was the not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow what's going to happen next month is the pandemic going to get worse are they going to shut us down crazy time yeah. it really was it really was if you just reflect for just a couple minutes and look back on the body of work since building the shelves in your dad's garage what are some key lessons you take away from this journey that you've had as you start to come down the mountain and these kids are headed up, what are you saying to them? You, know, you Give us some reflection on maybe those three things on what you learned, what you do differently and what you wouldn't change. I think initially, listen to the old guys. If it's a new guy coming in, you got to take the guys that have the experience, the 30 years, the 40 years in the industry and pick their brains. Whatever they do, it's not all right or wrong. But if you can talk to five or six different guys and take what they do and dissect what they do and apply a little bit of each one of them to how you go to market, you're going to be really successful. Again, take care of your customers, things along those lines. As a really small company, as a distributor, we relied on other people to do our work. We grow exponentially when we pull those things back in-house and we do it ourselves i guess that's one of my biggest things is that we try to not rely on somebody else to do our work and sometimes you have to grow into that you start in a one-car garage somebody's going to have to do something for you sometimes you have to warehouse it or deliver it or whatever it is but As you get bigger and if you're able to pull that stuff internally and you control it, it's truly all about controlling your own destiny with controlling what you're doing and how you're doing it. If you're going to rely on somebody else, they're not going to treat it
1: the same way you would. I think I know the answer, but would you change anything that you've done? No i had a feeling that was coming yeah no i'm
0: trying to think no i wouldn't change anything on how it went down it would have been nice to have my parents around a little longer in the business just to see the growth and obviously they still see it but it would be nice if they would have been a part of it
1: now we talked about your explosive growth after coming out of the pandemic you guys saw tremendous growth you're continuing to put new equipment in continuing to grow is there ever a time where you've said you've made it or you've thought in yourself you've made it people ask
0: me all the time hey what's your exit strategy i'm like I don't even know what that is. Yeah, Retirement for me is a four-letter word. I don't want to retire. I like what I do. I don't ever have a problem going into work. I'm, I live six miles from the plant, so I'm yeah. there seven days a week. Not necessarily all day, but I'll go into, I don't know, grab the mail on a Saturday. Sometimes I got stuff I need to do or whatever, but it's, sometimes it's just nice to be in there when nobody else is in there. I should have put a revolving door on my office when we redid the offices <laughs> because if there's just people in there constantly, it's in the business or do they want to get into the business? My oldest just graduated last month with his pharmacology doctorate from Ohio State. He is doing a residency right now in Cincinnati. (laughs) And I always tell him, Hey, dumb this down for me. I sell boxes for a living. <laughs> That's exactly. Talk to me like I'm five. Okay, so I've seen his homework, and I'm like, oh my god, is it like what language is that in? My middle guy does procurement for a uh, proteins company. They make uh, powder protein and things along those lines. He buys all of the boxes mm. for them and does not buy any from me. <laughs> Smart kid. <laughs> I, I would say to him, I'm like, can you throw the old man a bone? <laughs> And he's, dad, it's a national contract. I have nothing to do with it. But it's pretty funny. And then my little guy, he does work in the plant. He went to junior college for a couple of years and decided, hey, this just isn't for me. So does he enjoy it? I think he does. How cool is it to work with your kid? It's really cool. If I didn't work with him, I'd never see him. But He's just... He's a 23-year-old. He's got his own stuff to do and girls and games and do whatever he wants to do. And he I mean, he lives in my house
1: and I wouldn't see him. So I'm like, thank God I see him at work because I would never see him otherwise. Has he got a little bit of you in, in, in him in the respect of when you were 23? But my oldest is, he's a mini-me as
0: far as my MO and who I am. My middle guy is a little more reserved. My younger guy is, he's a lot more mechanical than I am. I'm more sales driven. He's more hands-on. He's doing a lot of the operating back there. I told him and the plant manager both, make sure Jackson knows how to set up everything in here. We just recently bought a brand new post forward glower. Depending on what you're setting up, it could be an extensive setup. If we have a tremendous amount of material that needs to go through that the following day, I could pull him out of his bedroom and go, hey, it's Sunday night, go set that machine up for tomorrow. Yeah. I can't do that with any other employees. <laughs> he's a great asset to the company for sure. Again, No experience corrugated whatsoever. Over time, he's learned how to read the drawings and he's learned how to set equipment up and set machinery up.
1: i hearing you talk about your dad and then Jeff and Ben. Anybody else like in your career that you can point to as somebody that's really been a help to you or you can say that without these people, I wouldn't be where I'm at.
0: I mentioned this about some of the guys that we used to buy from. The Dural's are a big part of where we are today. There was a situation where when we were going live with all this stuff, people were starting to second guess. what's going on? Where are you buying from? What's, why are you not buying from us anymore? And so there was a point in time, Dave Dural was the last one that we ended up telling. They were the one vendor I had zero problems with, but I'm not going to put all that machinery in there and then still buy stuff from them. Dave and I were pretty tight. They're good people. They're great people. We grew with them exponentially because he helped us. So there came a point in time where we had to Tell him what was going on. I kept telling him, hey, we got this new facility. We got this new facility. You got to come in. You got to come in. And I know he was going to the AICC golf outing in St. Charles. And I'm like, hey, you got to come in and see me. And he would tell me, I was in St. Charles. I didn't have time. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have time? I said, you got to come in here. Come on. So one day he's on our website. He said, hey, the hell's that machine on your website? I go, Dave, that's a two-color rotary staley. <laughs> he goes, what's the one next to it? I go, that's a two-color Simon Mini. He was like, what are you doing with all that shit? I go, Dave, fuck you. I go, I've been asking you for 18 months to come in here and see our new facility, for which you have blown me off for 18 months. He says, I'll be in tomorrow to the class of those guys. I'm basically pulling a business from underneath this guy. He comes in with a hundred dollar bottle of bourbon, puts it on the table and says, welcome to the club. Wow. That's awesome. That's a true partner. He also said, I don't want to burn a bridge with you. He says, you're going to still rely on me. I'm still going to rely on you. And that's already transpired. We've run a couple of jobs from them. There's a couple jobs they've run for us. We're still friendly. I still call them up. And this was probably one of the classiest things I've ever heard of in my career. So. Kudos to those guys. Like I said, they're, they have a great name in the business. Doesn't matter who you talk to. Correct. Everybody's friendly with those Except guys. Except that so. Notre Dame thing. Yeah, between all of them in that little regional <laughs>
1: area. <laughs> yeah, I, I stay out of that. We typically transition this show into giving you the opportunity to tell us what's next. Where do you see this journey taking you?
0: What we've done up to this point, we're almost at the end of what I would call phase one, getting the plant implemented, getting it running as good as we possibly can. Phase two for us is moving distribution which takes up about half of that building, moving that into a different facility, a larger facility. Production is going to stay, but it will just be production. We can move administration, which we're out of office space as it is. We're going to move administration out. We're going to move distribution out, put that into a larger facility that we could actually handle the growth better. Part of that phase two is now looking at the equipment that we have in there. Our mini is, I don't know, 45 years old. Our Langston is... 30 years old are these pieces of equipment that we should be updating upgrading i know that our rotary die cutter that we have in there now can we print yeah is it is the printing quality as good as a brand new press no does it get us by absolutely we want to do those we would like to be able to eventually add a five color press and leave that one there to just blow and go die cut no print or if it's just a part number something along those lines we'll leave that stuff there are we going to update are we going to upgrade we've been looking for 38 inch flexo for a year i literally Cannot find one My everybody and their brother looking for one. Green Bay had one dirt to dinner, pre-feeder to exit conveyor. I'm like, I'll take it. They're like, yeah, we won't sell it to you because you're a competitor. I'm like, I'm your competitor. I'm like, really? Okay. They wouldn't sell it to anybody domestically. They wanted to sell it outside the States. I just found it was funny that you guys called me your competitor. That was really fun. We're going to continue to expand with equipment to run it is to stay on five nines and a Saturday as long as we can. I'm going to try to avoid a second shift at all costs. If it gets to the point where we have to do that, then we'll be prepared and we'll do that. So we're going to really try to dial in on what we're doing and making it better and making it better quality, better speed, better everything in there. That's phase two for us. I, but am I ever going to be done? I doubt it. Yeah. That's. I just, I like what I do. And I thank God for that every day. You can have somebody who makes nothing and love what they do and have somebody who makes a million dollars and hate what they do you and bet. neither one of them works. It's been great. Thank you very much. Bill, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Breaking down boxes.
1: New shows will drop the first Monday of every month.
0: Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.